You are an American professor acclimating to life in Indonesia at a turning point in their history. When most of the American expat community evacuates, you stay. And suddenly, you find yourself the only American among the country's leading journalists and brightest minds. You knew that you had landed in a very special place, and you never looked back. You're listening to 2233, a podcast of exchange stories. In the United States, we maintain the illusion that we are in control of our lives. You know, we have plan. We got the Outlook calendar. We got, you know, we're we're in, we're in charge of everything. We're we're comfortable and 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 managing the world to our to our liking. But in Indonesia, nobody's in, nobody's in control of anything. And I found that that was really good for me. This idea that, you know, all kinds of crazy things can happen, and I just have to learn to roll with it, and that this actually is probably the, probably the way life is for most people in the world. But it was a really important lesson for me just to, you know, no, I'm not really in control of anything. That's an illusion. This week, what would Princess Diana do? Foregoing an evacuation and finding the story of Tempo. Join us on a journey from Washington, D.C. to Indonesia to learn we all have goodness waiting within us. It's 2233. We report what happens in the United States, warts and all. These exchanges shaped who I am. When you get to know these people, they're not quite like you. You read about them. They are people very much like ourselves. And oh, that's what we call cultural exchange. Ooh, yes. My name is Janet Steele, and I am an associate professor of journalism and mass communication at George Washington University, and I'm also the director of the Institute for Public Diplomacy and Global Communication. I've had two Fulbrights, uh, both to Indonesia, which is unusual because I understand you can very seldom get a second Fulbright to the same place you went before, but I made the case that I was a different person by the time I applied for the second Fulbright. My first one was in 1997 to 98, and I was at the University of Indonesia, and I was teaching in the American Studies program. I had uh, I had been uh, dating a man at the University of Virginia, which is where I had taught, and you know we were having a few problems. And I told him I was hoping to go to Indonesia. And then when I got the letter from the Fulbright Commission in Indonesia, it said I was a finalist. And I remember going to I went to see the movie The English Patient here in D.C. by myself, and I remember watching it and just having this this weird flash where I thought, you know, I'm going to get it. I know I'm going to go to Indonesia, and my life's going to be changed forever. And I think probably my boyfriend will break up with me. And all of those things happened. But in retrospect, that was actually one of the best things that could happen because Indonesians are such lovely people, but when they see 
and they're very friendly, but when they see two Americans together and as a couple, they always assume, well, you know, let's just leave the Americans alone. They'd probably rather talk to each other. But because I was there by myself, people found that so strange that they would come up and talk to me. So I really think in some ways the fact that I was there alone was a, gave me a huge amount of power and, and, and connections to people that were really nice. My best friend gave me a ride to the airport, and we found out that Princess Diana had just died. And And I guess at that point, I was flying an airline that stopped. I think we stopped in Detroit, and then we stopped in Tokyo, and then in Singapore, overnight in Singapore, and then on to, to Jakarta. And in each place, there was more information about Princess Diana, and everyone would be standing around watching the televisions. And it, so my arrival was very connected to the death of Princess Diana. And as soon as I got to Indonesia, people kept saying to me, you look just like Princess Diana, which of course I don't at all, other than that I'm tall and have you know light brown hair. And, and uh, so this kept happening. And so I go to the University of Indonesia my first day, and one of my colleagues says, well, we would really like you to give a public lecture as part of your Fulbright. And I said, sure. And then they said, we would like you to lecture on Princess Diana. <laughs> And I said, I really, I really don't know anything about Princess Diana, but everyone looked so crestfallen. I said, well, well, maybe I can talk about media coverage of Princess Diana. And so I did. And it was a, a huge success. And that was when I realized that, yes, I really can lecture on just about anything. And, you know, I am so, so out of my comfort zone here, but um, I'm just doing the best I can. And hopefully it's going to work. I found that for me, email was was really it was really sort of my lifeline. That in that not only that I could stay in touch, and these were the very early days of email too. So I had I had a Radnet account, and it was dial up. And by the by the end of that first year, I knew everybody in customer support at the Radnet office by name. And you know, I'd come by with my laptop because it would half the time it didn't work. I realized no matter what crazy thing happens to me, it's going to make a good story that even while it was happening, I would be composing the emails. And I like to write. I'm, I'm a writer. And, and so that was really, it was both my journal and a kind of way of framing every crazy thing that happened, because a lot of crazy stuff happens. So that was really it. I did a lot of traveling that first year by myself, and usually I would take local transportation because I didn't have that much money, and the rupiah was still pretty strong. And I remember taking a bus to a beach in West Java, and I had to take several buses and then a motorcycle. And my colleagues at, at the University of Indonesia just couldn't believe it, that you, 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 you took the bus, the public bus, and, and it was always that... I mean, I knew don't flash money, don't wear fancy jewelry or anything, but I also, Indonesians are so nice. I would just look sort of pathetic, and, and I would always find an, a person who looked friendly and say, what is the real price of this bus <laughs> What's the real bus fare? And so people sort of befriended me along the way, and it was way outside of my comfort zone. And I remember the first time I was riding behind some guy on an Indonesian motorcycle going to the beach thinking, no one is going to believe this. This is so far out what I would actually do in my real life. 
when I arrived in September, Suharto was still the president, and he'd been president for 32 years, and everyone there had just been an election. Everyone assumed he would die in office. He would never step down. And over the course of that year, uh, there were more and more protests. It was the Asian economic crisis. There were many, many student protests, all at my university where I was teaching. And so I, I was at ground zero for all of this. Uh, and by the end, Suharto resigned, and everything changed. It was an incredible year to be there. The one thing that I actually did, I knew I wasn't supposed to do, was I was there on a teaching Fulbright. And at that time, in order to do research, you had to get a permit from the Indonesian government. And they were quite strict, that if you were a Fulbrighter and you were there to teach, you were there to teach, no research. And of course, I immediately found a research project. Before I had gone to Indonesia, I'd heard Gunawan Muhammad, who was the editor of the Indonesian newsweekly Tempo, which had been banned by Suharto in 1994, give a talk. He said, I don't know why the army should fear us when they're the ones with the guns. And I wrote that down on a napkin, and I always thought about that. Well, as soon as I got to Indonesia, everyone I met seemed to be connected with Tempo, this magazine that had been banned. And I thought, this is incredible. How come no foreigners have seemed to know much about that? I mean, we all knew it was banned, but I, I came to realize this magazine was so important. So I started interviewing people. My idea was to write about the magazine that doesn't exist, that Suharto had tried to kill this magazine but you couldn't kill it. You couldn't kill an idea. And in some ways, it was more powerful in memory. Also, we were all supposed to be evacuated, and I, I didn't evacuate. That was, that was probably... It was probably the bravest thing I ever did. And it wasn't because I was so brave, actually. It was just because I, I knew if I evacuated that I wouldn't be able to come back until... They decided I could come back and it would be at my own expense. And what was I going to do in Singapore? And this was my Fulbright year. And I remember a diplomat called me and she said, I won't say her name, but she called me and she said, they can't force you to evacuate. You're not a U.S. government employee. So I had already planned a trip to China. I was going to be speaking there. And one of my friends at the bilateral commission had my passport because it had to be renewed every three months. And so I told the truth. I said, I don't have my passport and I'm unwilling to leave without my passport. But as soon as I get it, I will. I promise I will evacuate. And as I hoped, the, the rioting ended and a couple days later, Suharto stepped down. And I felt very safe. I had a lot of students there who called on me and who called me and checked on me. And so I knew it, I, it would be okay. But the interesting thing was that meant so much to Indonesians. And I didn't even, I was, I didn't even fully understand this until much later. I think the fact that I didn't evacuate, that just, it sort of changed everything that, Everybody was so impressed I didn't evacuate. It seemed kind of like a vote of confidence. So I felt like I really had thrown in my lot with Indonesia. And in some ways, I guess I did. So I was interviewing people, and I, but I knew I wasn't supposed to be doing this, and I couldn't tell any of my friends at the embassy because I wasn't supposed to be doing this, and I needed to give them plausible deniability. But I remember right after Suharto stepped down, I had another interview scheduled with Gunawan Muhammad, and he told me, we talked for three hours, and I recorded the whole thing, and I just couldn't believe the things he said. And at that point, there was a Fulbright conference at Safari Park in West Java. And I remember telling the PAO there, 
what had happened. And I said, you know, this is just incredible. And he agreed. And I, so I knew it was, it was actually okay. There are very few Americans who write about journalism in Indonesia. There are a couple of Australians who do, and there are a lot of famous Indonesianists here. But I, I was just so lucky. You know, they're, they're, they're anthropologists, and they're out on these remote, remote islands studying languages and culture. Here I was plopped down right in Jakarta with all of these friends who were journalists at Indonesia's biggest news magazine. So I was right in the thick of things in an incredibly lucky way, and I just knew... I. No, nobody, nobody gets to do this. It would be as if I were plopped down in New York in the 30s at the Algonquin Hotel and were hanging out with Dorothy Parker and everybody from the New Yorker, and they were all my friends and telling me stuff, and nobody had ever written about them before. So I, I was really unbelievably lucky to be in the right place at the right time. the prologue to my book on tempo that I eventually wrote. And it was that three-hour conversation with Gunawan Muhammad because Suharto had just stepped down and Gunawan, all the temp, ex-tempo journalists had met and said they wanted to bring back their bring back the magazine. And Gunawan, didn't, at that point, didn't want to be the editor again. He had accepted a position at Columbia University. He was writing the libretto for an opera. And he'd, he'd moved on. But he also knew that he really had no choice, that they could never unite around someone else. And so he he knew he was going to do it. And even though Indonesia is a majority Muslim country, the great Hindu epics are still very powerful in imagination. And I had read the Mahabharata, actually the comic book version of it. That's true. The comic book, but I'd also read the Bhagavad Gita in English. And and I thought, this is incredible. Gunawan is making a decision just like Arjuna. You know, he, he doesn't want to fight, but he knows he has to, that it is, his, it is his destiny. It is his duty. And I was there, and there was no one else. It was like this three-hour interview that I got on tape. And I actually put it in the prologue to my book because I thought almost word for word because it was so extraordinary. And I, I, while it was happening, I just kept thinking, I can't believe he's telling me these things. And I know he's never told them to anyone else. And I just happen to be in the right place at the right time. And I've been interested in Tempo. And I understand the magazine's importance. And I'd interviewed him a few times before. And he just told me everything, which I, I feel like that's probably the best thing I've ever written. And uh, it was a great moment. Did he read the book? Oh, yeah. They, everybody at Tempo liked the book. The other thing that was interesting was after Suharto actually was forced to step down, Tempo magazine almost immediately got its license back. And so everybody dropped their other jobs and went back to Tempo, which I, after four years, which I found astonishing. But I remember thinking, well, there goes my article because it's no longer the magazine that doesn't exist. And if, I, I always joke, you know, I cried all the way home on the plane. And then I realized, wait a minute, there's nothing to prevent me from going back. 
Never having been terribly good at math, I had miscalculated my Fulbright year. It was not actually my sabbatical year. I was still eligible for a sabbatical. And the dean had recognized that, and he said, well, you can have both, but you need to come back here and teach for a year. So I did, and I, I studied Indonesian, and I attended classes and did a lot of reading. And so I went back the second year and um, did the research. And that time I had a, a uh, research permit and was completely legit. And, and I, by that point, I could speak Indonesian. The first time I ever lectured in Indonesian, I was very proud of that. I was very nervous about it, and um, I, I also knew this is probably a rite of passage, because, you know, college professors, you're you have a personality when you teach. You have a kind of persona, and you know when the students are going to laugh, and you know you know how to pitch things and when to pause. And I was afraid that all of that would be lost in Indonesian. But I don't think it was. And in fact, what I hadn't anticipated is that people would just hang on every word I said because they were so interested. You know, it's like, here's this, here's this American who's speaking Indonesian. And Indonesians are so generous about language. You know, it's the kind of thing where you say one or two words and, oh, you're Indonesian, so beautiful. So they would help me. I'd be groping for a word and they'd you know, be shouting it out from the front row. And so that was, um, I still get nervous when I lecture in Indonesian because you want to make sure you, you're saying exactly the right thing. And, you know, I've also learned you have to be careful about humor because it doesn't always translate well. You need to make sure you say what you think you're saying, that kind of thing. I had my parents come and visit. And uh, actually, by listening to the podcast, I know that a lot of Fulbrighters have their parents come and visit. And that's always a big moment because you're, you know, you've got often older people and you're not sure how it's going to work. And my dad had broken his ankle and was on crutches. And that was a little bit worrisome. And and uh, they, my parents used to joke how I had said to them, and I did say this, oh, don't worry, Indonesians are so nice and they like older people, which they thought was just hilarious. But it is actually true. And my students at the University of Indonesia had organized this dinner for my parents. And they brought presents and made speeches. And my parents were just blown away by this. And I was too, you know, all of them came and it was, it was, it was, it was really wonderful. It was just wonderful. And I remember the moment in Indonesia. This was, again, a ridiculous moment. I had been um, asked by the editor of a newspaper to come and teach English. And I said, I, I, I can't do that. I can't teach English. I'm not an English teacher. But then I thought, this is a great opportunity to go actually to this news organization and hang around, meet journalists. And this was my first year when I didn't speak Indonesian. So I said, well, I, I can't go and teach can't go and teach English, but I'm happy to go. We can have a, a we weekly class on you know, theory and practice of journalism, and it will be in English. So they liked that idea. So I went there, this was quite early on in my Fulbright, I went there thinking, oh, these poor Indonesian journalists, they don't really understand how to how to be good journalists. And I was so wrong. And, and I actually think, and I since then I found that 
I don't. I think every country in the world, journalists know what good journalism is. They may not be free to practice it, but they know. <laughs> you don't have to ever tell a journalist what good journalism is. And and that was a very important lesson for me. That the the thing to try to change is the laws, that not to improve people because they already know. And but just to 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 give them the freedom to practice their own profession and to regulate themselves through their own professional. Ideology and ethics is that's what you need to do. I'm really proud of American freedom of expression, and I I came to appreciate that and of the First Amendment, and I came to appreciate that increasingly, just what an incredible gift this is. Well, it's actually not a gift; it's our right. In fact, that's something that I would frequently. I still I, I do a lot of lecturing now for the State Department. I, I've recently been in Malaysia, and they just had a, a bloodless revolution and a change of government. And and um, one of the things I've just said over and over and over is, press freedom is not a gift from the government. It's a right of the people, and that that's a, such a different way of thinking about things. I mean, in the United States, we're not grateful to our government for having given us the First Amendment. This is our constitutional right, and so. Things like that, just sort of basic American values. That that when you're in a place that doesn't have those those basic rights, those basic values, well, they may have the value, but they don't have the right. That that uh, that made me very very proud of what we have. I have an apartment in Jakarta, and I go every summer. And I had a second Fulbright in 2005 to 2006. Indonesia, after the the transition to democracy, I mean, it's not perfect. They've got they've still got problems, but they have they have an, a media system that's the envy of Southeast Asia. They have a great press law. They have a press council that where journalists themselves regulate. Um, their own profession that they it's all outside it's outside the law it's not legally binding but they actually decide you know no that that story was was unethical and you need to apologize or give the right to reply so yeah I think I'm optimistic in that way but I also think I'm optimistic and this is something I also I think learned uh, in Indonesia from a good friend of mine who then became the 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 editor of Tempo after after Gunawan stepped down and and that was that that all of us, well, actually, Gunawan, something famous he'd said was, there are no heroes, there are only heroic acts. And I believe that's true. And I think all of us are capable of being better than we really are. And, you know, maybe we haven't done much to distinguish ourselves, but we have to hope that when the time comes and there's a really important choice to make, we make the right choice. And I guess I'm always optimistic that that people who maybe haven't done anything so great yet actually will. And that to, and I view my and I'm thinking more in the realm of the press, but I view my job as really sort of being a cheerleader for the fact that for good journalism and also for the fact that we we need to step up and we need to 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 stand for what's right publicly. And uh, so i'm always I'm always optimistic. Frequently, I would 
I would say to myself, when I'd be in a really odd situation, I would say, now, what would Princess Diana do when faced with this? <laughs> because often it was just, you know, it was just nutty, the, the things that would happen. And certainly every time I would be on a motorcycle, I would think, I wish my friends and family could see this. That still happens. But I think it's funny, the, the, the what would Princess Diana do? I, it, in a way, I realized... We can try to be better people than we actually are. Everyone would always assume that I was, you know, this paragon of, of brilliance and grace and beauty and, and you know, was, which is ridiculous. Here, no one treats me like that. But I would, I would really try to be this person that they thought I was. And, uh, and I, that was an important lesson, I think. Twenty-two thirty-three is produced by the Collaboratory, an initiative within the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, better known as ECA. My name's Christopher Wurst. I'm the director of the Collaboratory. Twenty-two thirty-three is named for Title Twenty-two, Chapter Thirty-three of the U.S. Code, the statute that created ECA. And our stories come from participants of U.S. government-funded international exchange programs. This week, Janet Steele talked about her experiences as a Fulbrighter in Indonesia. For more about Fulbright and other ECA exchange programs, check out eca.state.gov. We encourage you to subscribe to 2233. You can do so wherever you find your podcasts, and we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at ecacollaboratory at state.gov. That's E-C-A-C-O-L-L-A-B-O-R-A-T-O-R-Y at state.gov. Photos of each week's interviewee and complete episode transcripts can be found at our webpage. That's eca.state.gov slash 2233. Special thanks this week to Janet for sharing her passion about Indonesian journalism and freedom of speech. I did the interview and edited this segment. Featured music was Buddha by Duke Ellington and his famous band. Swapping Tubes, Chromium Blush, and Skyway by Blue Dot Sessions. And the song is ended, but the melody lingers on by Ruby Braff and his men. Music at the top of each episode is Sebastian by How the Night Came. And the end credit music is Two Pianos by Tagir Lius. Until next time. <laughs>